0: Hello, welcome to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison, and we've got Ros Taylor here to start your week. Hello, Roz. How are you today?
1: I'm very well, thank you.
0: Regenerated over a long weekend?
1: Uh, yes, pretty much. I managed to have a lovely swim in the Lido uh, near me on Saturday, so that was fantastic.
0: Very nice. Now, it's election week and it's a short week. It's a strange one, isn't it, because we've had such political tumults for the past, you know, two years and three years and four years, and this week actually is the one week in a long time when it just kind of sort of feels like nothing's happening.
1: Yeah, it's strange because it's not really political tumult in the way that we understand mm. political tumult at the moment. Because the odd thing at the moment is just how much the government controls the agenda and controls the political agenda. And it is extremely difficult for the opposition to get a look in and for, to get any kind of exposure. I mean, the newspapers and the media hang on the Prime Minister's every word to find out when we will be permitted to do things that previously we never thought of as our freedoms, but which we now think of as our freedoms, like going on a holiday and going to a pub and so on. And that becomes the sole focus of the media's attention uh, because it's a good news story, because it feels positive, because it feels like we're looking forward and that's what they go for. But the result is this kind of decrepitude of politics. There's no political life either, really, because the things that bring politics alive, like rallies and mass gatherings and things like that, can't happen at the moment. So it really is a wonderful, wonderful time for uh, an incumbent government to have an, an election, as you are seeing in both Scotland and in Britain as a whole.
0: Well, it is election week, with polling at local governments in England, national elections in Scotland and Wales, as you say. The Metro Mayor's hot, Hartlepool by-election. We can't go into micro-detail. We're not John Curtis. There'll be plenty of that on Thursday for everybody. But we're going to uh, have a quick look now. And by the way, if you back our sibling podcast, Oh God, What Now?, on Patreon, there's an election special Zoom for Patreon people at 6.30 on Friday. But anyway, Ross. so overall, Labour have kind of been stealing themselves for a bit of a kicking in this round of elections, haven't they? But the national polls have been tightening over the past few days.
1: Yeah, they have, in a very interesting way. So it does seem that, despite what people initially said, some of the sleaze allegations are cutting through. Mm. I think people have overestimated a little bit how loyal and grateful, more importantly, the population is to Johnson for the vaccinations. I don't think they credit him personally with having achieved that goal.
0: But there's a photograph of him in a white coat, Roz. What are you talking about? He's there with a (laughs) test tube. We've all seen it. He made the virus by hand.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he he made the he made the vaccine and he distributed it. And he did he decided who to buy it from and how much to pay. And yeah, he made all those decisions, didn't he, Andrew? Except he <laughs> yes, didn't. <certainly. laughs> um, he got so He outsourced it to someone who was more competent, which is really the only way that Boris Johnson can ever manage to achieve anything. So I don't think the vaccine bounce will last very long. The question is whether it lasts long enough to ensure that these elections are a good news story for the Tories? And the answer to that may well be yes. But there are so many seats here where the result is fairly clear cut. I mean, Andy Burnham is going to win in Manchester. The new Labour candidate, Joanne Anderson, is going to win in Liverpool. I'm pretty sure that Andy Street is going to take Birmingham again, uh, and he's not going to let Liam Burn in. There are some very predictable races. So the question in in uh, really is what happens to the councils and what happens to any swing? Is there any real swing towards the Conservatives? But I think the people who do turn out in these local elections will largely be voting on local issues, which is a good thing. Uh, it's a good thing that this, uh, these set of elections are not primarily about Boris Johnson because they're not primarily about Boris Johnson. They're about Scotland and they're about, about local councils and they're about metro mayors and police commissioners.
0: Well, what always happens is that the victorious party says it was all about the national party and it was all about their leader and the, and the losing party always says, well it's only local elections, let's see, it's a general election. But we have seen <laughs> the, the actual national poll in Westminster voting intention there was one from Redfield, Wilson how the Tories down 4% at 40% Labour Four percent at thirty-eight percent. Opinion has the Conservatives down two percent at forty-two percent, and Labour up four percent at thirty-seven percent. So, is it possible to transpose, you know, local election and um, you know that kind of polling to 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 national polling, or is there some kind of halfway house you can come to between the two to reach an idea of exactly what's happening?
1: Yeah, this is not going to be a you know fantastic turnaround of victory for Labour. There's no way that it's going to be that. But nonetheless, it it will it it has the potential to be a little bit uh, inspirational and provide a little bit of a boost for Labour. Bear in mind, too, an important thing about elections, which is when people are feeling positive, as you would imagine, some of them are, not all of them are, but some of them are about vaccination and the future and the, as I've said, the new freedoms that we are expected to have. They may they are more prepared to take risks. This point has been made recently in the context of the uh, elections for German Chancellor, which are coming up this autumn, where pe- if people feel that things are going well and they've kind of been able to go away on a holiday and you know, the pandemic is uh, going forward, they might be prepared to take a risk and elect a Green Chancellor rather than going for the incumbent CDU party that Angela Merkel belongs to. When people are feeling positive, they are more prepared to, to strike out and take a risk. And it may well be that in a limited way, people, the sort of gratitude factor does not work particularly well for Johnson. For the reasons I've mentioned earlier, and that he's not personally responsible for the vaccine rollout and how it's gone and how well it's gone. And also that people are feeling, yeah, why not take a punt on something? And for that reason, I think that the Greens will actually do, relatively speaking, pretty well in this week's elections, especially in London, where Sadiq Khan is guaranteed a victory. So there is no danger really of letting in Sean Bailey, thank goodness. So people will use, I think, their second vote, I mean, their first vote to vote green. And I think they will do very well. There will be a good showing there. And I think that will also play out in other parts of the country where the race looks as if it's locked
0: up it's been face first choice for me and then Sadiq, but we'll see about that. One of the things that is difficult about this is that it's quite hard to focus on a disparate and diffuse set of national elections. But one place that is going to get focus is Hartlepool, which is a massive test for Starmer, no matter what which way you look at it. Labour's held Hartlepool since 1964. It used to be Mandelson's seat, Guacamole North. But it's a 70% leave constituency and the Brexit party did quite well in 2019. Richard got 26%. Friend of the podcast, John Curtis, says this is a test of Starmer's strategy of keeping quiet about Brexit. What do you think is going to happen in Hartlepool? Because it it, it looks a little bit tighter now than it did uh, in the early days of this by-election campaign.
1: I'm going to hedge my bets and say that it could go either way. I mean, yeah. I'm not on the ground at Hartlepool. There are people who probably have a far better idea who are out canvassing who know which way it could go. I think... An important question is: This is a by-election is always different from a general election because when you're voting in a general election, you have the feeling that you could change a government. That is not happening here. So the question is whether people think a Labour MP could help them in their current circumstances. And Hartlepool has a lot of social problems. It had a higher than average death rate from coronavirus. We all it has the typical problems of places that people call left behind. So. People may think, well, I might just as well throw my lot in with the Tories and the CFI benefit. Look at the attention that the red wall has been getting. Look at the impact that some of the Northern MPs have been having. Maybe with a Tory MP, we can have, we can, you know, punch above our weight and get a bit of a reward, if you like, from Johnson. So that factor may be at play. And simultaneously is the fact that there is no Chance of a change on the national stage, so it could well be that for that reason the Conservatives will edge it. There will also be an issue, and there is likely to be a huge recriminations in the Labour Party if it turns out that the Tories win because the Labour candidate was is a was a Remainer, and so there is likely to be an internal kind of bust up as we have seen before about. What place there is for people who oppose Brexit in the modern Labour Party and what, to what degree the party should focus on it. But it's fair to say that Starmer, as you say, you know, has not been focusing on Brexit at all. So I don't think that will be too much of an issue in people's minds. Brexit is very much, you know, behind. It's, it's the, it's the last, last but one issue now in people's minds. I don't think it's playing into their vote too much.
0: Can Starmer get past a bad or a mediocre election performance in Hartlepool?
1: Yeah, I think he can. Yeah, I don't think there's a clear candidate to replace him right now. There was a bit of talk about, um, especially in Manchester, about Andy Burnham being the natural successor, but Andy Burnham will just have been re-elected and I don't think it's yet his time. Starmer has not been in charge long, you know, only a year, come on, it's not. It would be a very short tenure at a time in which he has had almost no opportunity to make his mark because the media have been so overwhelmingly focused on the pandemic and on government briefings and have given so little attention to the opposition. I think there would be no justification for booting Starmer out now, but clearly in the Labour Party, there is a dynamic that would love to get rid of him and replace him with someone further to the left.
0: Scotland. Now, we comment on Scottish politics at our own risk. It appears that the SNP are way ahead in the Scottish elections so on 47%. Both Labour and the Conservatives are stuck on 20% on the constituency poll. The SNP are on 37% on the list poll. Obviously, the whole consequence of this is, will there or will there not be an independence vote? But it looks like support for independence has has been falling. The latest is 53% no and 47% yes in the event of a, a hypothetical second independence vote. Like I say, south of the border, we, we sort of try to not make too many uh, grand pronouncements. But... Um, from what you've seen, Ros, which way do you think it's going and, you know, what is the likelihood of there being another poll? Sturgeon's now saying that this, this this vote is not an independence vote.
1: No, it's not an independence vote, but clearly it's a potentially vote for the Scottish National Party and the Scottish National Party, uh, Party's raison d'etre is independence. As I said before, this is a great election for incumbents and it has been a great election for Sturgeon, even though she has, because she has sought to differentiate herself so much from Johnson. In point of fact, there is not a great deal of difference between Scotland's performance in the pandemic and England's performance in the pandemic. But nonetheless, the feeling that Scots had autonomy over decisions about lockdown and of decisions about the border has greatly benefited Sturgeon. And as she has come out of it as a figure with a lot more gravitas as well, which, of course, Johnson lacks. So it's been very good for her. The problem in a way for for Scots, and particularly Scots who want perhaps a bit more independence, but don't want full independence because of the enormous challenges that a break with England would present, I mean, it would mean mm. a new border. It would mean potentially, if as Scotland wants to, if it joins the EU, it would mean that we had a hard border with the EU. That is an enormous thing to overcome. Mm. And so the more that Scots throw their lot in with Nicola Sturgeon, the less likely it is. That Labour can ever win, and Anna Starwar can can ever can ever make inroads again into into Scotland. It's, it's hard to remember just how oh. much of a grip Labour and the Lib Dems had in Scotland until the SNP made such an enormous surge, and that is what makes it so difficult for Labour to win nationally in the UK. And at the moment, of course, you have a situation with Johnson in charge, with a very right-wing conservative government that Scots do not identify with. So it narrows the options. The more they throw their lot in with Sturgeon, because that means complete, fun- you know, functional independence. Mm but if they don't there's a feeling of powerlessness because what at the moment is labor is labor able to achieve you're playing a much longer game with labor and you're trusting that starmer or whoever succeeds him can actually have a chance of winning next time so it's an it's a game of impatience in many ways it's a it's a feeling of how urgently do we need scotland for independent people tending towards independence How urgently do we need Scotland to be out of the UK? Have we really had enough? Is this the time or can we hang on a bit longer and see if this right-wing government in London is booted out Mm. to avoid having to inflict both Brexit and an exit from the United Kingdom on us? So the, it's whether how much of an appetite there for risk there is in Scotland, and uh, the Sturgeon has been do, doing all she can, obviously, not to present this as a risk, not to suggest that Scottish rule in in Scotland is anything more than a continuation of the status quo with extra powers. But it would be a big, big split, even with the experience that we've had of there being a hard border in, in effect between. Mm-hmm between uh, Scotland and England during the pandemic with the coronavirus restrictions, it would still be a big, big break. And I think people, when they actually sit down and think about it, realise that. I may be, you know, shot down on Twitter for suggesting that, but it is nonetheless a an enormous break. And it's not something which I think necessarily, if the country has had enough of this government, and I wouldn't ever blame them for having enough of this government, now may be the time. But the question is whether it is the time or whether you hang on a bit longer.
0: Independence used to be a bit of a side issue in Wales, but it's much more central to the debate now. Labour's probably going to be the biggest party again, but this time without an overall majority in the Senate. Uh, and if it drops below 29 seats, it's going to need a coalition, uh, which probably means Plaid. Plaid is committed to a referendum and Mark Drakeford, the Labour leader, is is against it. Is this the Brexit end of the UK effect again? That you you can't run around saying take back control to the whole country and then expect people to not want more of it, particularly when central government seems to show little interest in their country?
1: I, I think it is. And the independence debate in Wales has been getting a lot more vocal. and The same thing has happened as happened with Scotland in that you've had a hard border and you've seen decisions visibly being taken by the current administration in Wales and lockdowns happening at different times, different rules being in place. So there is a feeling that Wales is far more capable of governing itself. But Wales is, you know, the powers devolved to Wales are a lot less than, than those which were devolved to Scotland. So it is a much, much bigger leap for Plaid Cymru to, to, to have yeah. the kind of surge that the SNP would, would hope for. I, th- I can well see Wales becoming um, independent or more independent in the next 10, 20 years. I think it's a, a long game, though, and I think it's more likely that a future Labour government would devolve more powers to Wales as Tony Blair did in 1997, in order to try to stymie the independence movement and in order to try and get the, keep the whatever remains of the UK by that time together.
0: Well, we're all going to know by Friday morning what this all means. But in the meantime, let's just do a couple of things before we go. that aren't elections. Covid, your specialist subject, Ros, certain EU countries are now saying they're open to UK tourists. Wales partially opened up at the weekend. What developments are you expecting this week?
1: there will be a list soon of countries that we are allowed to travel to uh, without quarantining on the way back and there will be a sort of green amber red traffic light system that we've become familiar with where only a few countries at first will be on the green list places like finland and iceland but as the summer goes on um, there will be more more countries will be added to that list and the important thing that most people care about is that France and Spain and Italy and other places that they might want to go on holiday to, uh, not notwithstanding the charms of Finland, it's great, but you know, and Iceland that is too. But they're not they're not common <laughs> British summer holiday destinations. Uh, will probably open up in June or early July, and that's the salient fact that it matters matters to a lot of people. Of course, the demand will be, I think, very very intense, and we will see a huge, as we saw in in, uh, in Britain where prices went a bit crazy with accommodation we will see a big rush and we will see the price of holidays rising a lot as people who have s- saved up a lot of money over the pandemic which is some of the population because they haven't had much to spend it on uh you know go for the go for the most luxurious and fantastic holiday that they can possibly possibly afford we shouldn't i think we shouldn't forget that despite the fact that this is all over the front pages of the mail and the times and the telegraph and so on every day. This is not necessarily representative of the UK population. There will be a lot of people who are not in a position at all to have a holiday abroad. And to them, this is pretty irrelevant.
0: Hmm. There was some quite worrying news from the United States that herd immunity is now believed to be Kind of out of reach that, it, that, you know, they've passed the point where it can be achieved and that therefore COVID is going to be a health issue to manage for many years ahead that dealing with variants and mutations and uh, the, the need to change and upgrade various vaccines is now going to be an issue that's, that, that that's with them for the foreseeable future over a matter of decades and you were you were as we were talking before the podcast you were mentioned that you think masks in particular here are going to extend beyond june do you think we're going to be seeing you know messaging to that effect don't imagine that on june 21st absolutely everything is going to go right back to the way it was in january 2020
1: no it isn't at all i mean one of the striking things that i've seen working at university is how uh risk averse companies and bodies are being in terms of public events, there will simply not be the same numbers of big public events that you saw before. Lots of events that previously were off- offline will move online, and people will kind of default go for the safe option. I mean, that will change eventually, but for the moment, there there is not going to be a huge shift. I mean, one of the things, for example, is graduation ceremonies at the LSE. Nobody is, will be graduating in person, hmm. uh, which is which is quite sad. And I think there will be a lot of people continue to wear masks, especially during the winter, because masks do also protect against flu. There is a very good case for wearing a mask if you have a cold or flu when you were traveling on public transport, for example. We never really thought about it before in the UK, but there is a good case for doing that. And I think it will continue to happen and you will routinely see people wearing them, especially in winter on public transport. And there are quite a lot of people who do anyway for one reason or another. Mm. Because you are right, what the US has said about COVID becoming endemic, it is going to happen here too. COVID is not going away. It is impossible to completely eradicate it from everywhere, particularly as more countries open up. What we have to hope is that the vaccines that we have are either effective against new variants, or we can easily tweak them to be effective against new variants. And of course, that's more possible for the rich world, as we've seen, where countries that are currently suffering very, very badly with second and third waves haven't been able to vaccinate their citizens and we have uh we have had that first mover advantage and that means that as 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 Johnson has implied there may be boosters in the autumn next year to protect against future variants and we are in a, in a good position to do that but a lot of the world is not and so one of the things that i think you will also see is a reluctance you know a re- a, a big crackdown on borders and you will probably have compulsory quarantine from countries that are badly affected by COVID for a long time yet. And all the talk about fantastic summer holidays in the, you know, in in Europe is great, but we often forget that there are an awful lot of people in Britain who have relatives in other parts of the world who they want to see, who really they, they have a right to see. And if you look at what Australia has done, where it's been extremely strict on Australians who are abroad at the time of a second or third wave in that in that particular country or relatives of Australians. And they basically said, don't come back, we don't want you. Mm-hmm. And there will be that sentiment. There will be a feeling that we can't go through this again. You know, this is a price worth paying. And, and international mobility will will decline a lot as a result. And, of course, it will decline anyway because so many things that people used to do in person will
0: move to Zoom. Ross Taylor, thanks for joining us and getting up early. Thank you. Remember, listeners, there's a new bunker every Monday to Thursday and now on Saturday mornings as well. And don't forget that election special on Friday for our Oh God, What Now? Uh, Patreon supporters, it's on Zoom. Sign up for as little as £2 a month and you can uh, get our analysis on Friday night. Ross, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. The Bunker
1: Daily Produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofranievich. audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.